let's get started here. Um, we can do that. Guys, welcome to the AOR Lives podcast. Uh, I'm Hedge. My guest today is the senior coach at Parkour Generations, board member of Parkour UK and board member of Parkour Earth, Chris okay. Keithley. He's heavily involved in parkour across the world. He's probably best known in his role delivering the ADAPT qualifications, where he travels worldwide to do that. Um, Chris and I hope to be talking about the evolution of coach education today, as well as how to get the most out of your learners and the state of parkour coaching all across the world. And we will probably go on pretty massive tangents because that's what we do. Um, I would start on a tangent if I could, but I'm pretty sure linguistically that's not a thing, so... Well, let's start somewhere. Um, the way I normally start these interviews is with a bit of an overview of the guests' early days of parkour. So you were a jump London boy, but yes. um, after that, you quickly got into coaching. So what was your um, early parkour career like? Um, so, yeah, when Jump London aired back in 2003, I I remember seeing the adverts for it before the the trailers for it before the actual documentary came on. So I remember being excited to watch it based on this little snapshot of what I'd seen. Um, and then sometime in like the week after watching it, I went out with my brother and a couple of my friends to probably do what was fairly typical then. And also probably not atypical now, which is just going like, try and climb around on things um so there's at least one i don't think it is a, a school anymore but it was a, a private girls school that just after dark we would go and climb on the roofs because a lot of it is just like a ground floor thing that goes up and it was relatively easy to explore and we thought that's what it was about for a couple of weeks um <laughs> And then I was very lucky because in the very early days, the parkour community in the UK was quite London centric. Um, I think a combination of just having the most number of people, having really good transport links and having been featured in the documentary, all of those elements kind of combined in a way that meant a lot of people in order to find other people to train with would make a, a journey down to London of a Sunday and train around South Bank, which kind of became one of the, the focal points. Um, but I think that was probably a few months later after I'd gone to my first uh, parkour day that UF had arranged. At, uh, it was a gymnastics centre over in extreme East London um, in Erith, where the first few parkour days were oh, held. Interesting. Mark Turok told me about that very that very thing just the other yeah. day. Well, I, I, I want to watch the one with Mark because like, there's... I think a 0% chance that he will remember me because I was just some random little young forum guy at the time. Uh, but I remember going to the T-Jam, which was the Terminator Jam, because that was one of his nicknames. And it was like the farewell jam to M2, as he was then, before he went back to the States. Um, and I mostly remember the jam because my uh, the kind of tassels on my hoodie, one of them flicked up and scratched my eyeball. And I couldn't, couldn't see properly for three days. So, and ever since, I have a pretty blanket rule that I will either take them out or make sure they're the ones with just material ends and that will keep my eyes safe. Um, already, first tangent, out the way. Um, <laughs> but so that, that, that was like the first kind of couple of years. And then the way it kind of went from parkour training into parkour career began um, relatively... Uh, unbelievably with a lad's holiday to 
uh, somewhere in Greece, where basically I went went on this holiday. We hired quad bikes. Um, we were slightly idiots. We were kind of like uh, herring around up in the hillsides. Flipped a quad bike, landed on my shoulder. Shoulder wasn't happy. Um, I think this was probably like 2005. Um, but in any case, my shoulder definitely wasn't great. And the physios hadn't been a great deal of use. Um, and the reason this is relevant is because that's what inspired me to go to my first parkour class or to, or to transition from having just done training at jams into going to a class environment. It wasn't actually so much for the parkour aspect as much as I knew that uh, Forrest was one of the coaches of these classes. Uh, Forrest Francois Marp, one of the founders of Parkour Generations, and one of the earliest uh, French practitioners that had moved to the UK. Um, and I didn't know him particularly well, but I'd met him once or twice at Jams in London, and he already had a reputation for being... Uh, the friendliest man in the world? Well, both friendly, but more importantly, knowledgeable. And especially, oh, okay. and espe well, especially <laughs> back then, it was even rarer, because most of this was just people seeing it and going out and doing it. And we came from a whole variety of backgrounds, but very few that were related to sports or sports education. And Forrest had a degree, I think it was in PE teaching specifically, but I'm sure uh, he or someone could correct me if I've got that slightly wrong. But it meant that he knew a lot more about the body, about sports development. Um, he'd helped Stefan Vigru with his rehab after his... Uh, or one of his leg. Yeah, one of his ACL injuries. Um, so my theory was that, well, I don't just want my shoulder to get generally healthy like i want to carry on doing parkour so if i go to a parkour class taught by this guy it's not that i'm going to get personalized specialist knowledge but he's going to understand the needs of the sport and probably be able to like include me in a way that will help me get my strength back uh, specifically for parkour so that's why i started going to parkour classes um and i think um, i think it'd be fair in saying a vast majority of the people that were going to classes at the time were discovering parkour through classes. So the, these were basically the first classes in the UK. Um, whereas I'd already had a couple of years training in the community, um, which just gave me a little bit more experience than some of my peers. Um, and combined with that, I was already teaching steel pans, which is a musical instrument from Trinidad and Tobago, um, after school uh, once or twice a week. Um, so that when Dan and Forrest um, and Stefan were looking at people that might be able to coach alongside them. Uh, so this was pre-parkour generations. I guess my combination of parkour experience and some teaching experience made me a a likely candidate to kind of help step into that type of role. Um, and that that's how the parkour like professional career element got started. Shortly after graduating, they asked uh, they set up what was Parkour Coaching Limited for a few weeks or months before it changed its name to Parkour Generations. Um, and they asked me if I'd like to come on board as a coach and kind of work with them um, at that time. Cool. So I suppose the next bit of the story that we should probably go into is the early days of ADAPT, because it's obviously had so many iterations, so many variations. Um, how involved were you in the actual creation of the course? Because obviously now it's something that you deliver day in and day out as your main job. Yeah. But I think the early days were a little bit different, weren't they? 
Well, so I'm trying to get the, I always struggle to get the time scale exactly right. But the very initial formation, I wasn't involved when I was, um, but by UK standards, relatively experienced, um, but by parkour ADD standards, not that experienced. We had people like Stefan Vigru, uh, Forrest, and Dan on the one side, um, talking with the Amakazi and um, again, people with decade, literal decades of experience on the other side. Um, so it was something that they formulated between themselves. And I started tutoring, I think it was the second course. So they did a pilot course. And then the second course, I did a day co-tutoring with Johan Vigru, if my memory serves correctly. Um, so I became involved in delivery very early on. And I think the nature of any new program, whether it's coach education or a new parkour class or whatever it may be, it normally undergoes significant kind of revision over the first couple of years, just in terms of what works, what's feasible. Um, so I guess in terms of how the course developed over those first couple of years, I was a bit more involved. Uh, but in terms of the initial prep and setup and what did that first iteration look like, that was a little bit before me. Cool. So bearing the idea that I want to, I do want to get into the adapt qualification quite a lot today. Um, do you want to give me an overview? Um, what do you see as the difference between parkour coaching and coach education? Um, I mean, the, I guess the most fundamental thing is just the, the skill set and that when you're coach educating, you are helping people become better coaches, not better athletes, or I'm going to use the word athlete in a very broad uh, sense when we're talking about parkour practitioners. It's a lot more than just the sporting uh, capacity and element, but it's a, it's a useful term to draw the distinction now. Um, so the skill set is like fundamentally very, very different. And I think the nature of the learning environment for those is uh, fundamentally different, partly because of the way courses are structured and partly through the necessity of learning and practicing those things. Um, so for instance, if you're teaching someone parkour, like they are only responsible for themselves. So you've got responsibility to help keep them safe and they've got responsibility to keep themselves safe. Um, but generally, unless something crazy is happening, they shouldn't be in a position where they can endanger the rest of the class. Um, whereas if you're coach educating, if they're practicing their teaching, they are also kind of in a position where they are responsible for the safety of a bunch of other students and people. Um, so it means that the way that you can practice that is already fundamentally different in terms of those responsibilities. Um, so a lot of the coach educating is based in a more fake environment because it's not necessarily done by, okay, here's a class, do a class. I think that's a really when you've got the time and the access to do that well, it's a really great way of coach development. So having a coach and a mentor, which is essentially how I started, really following, mm. following guys like Dan Forrest, being in their classes as a student first and then coaching alongside them in a junior role and developing as a coach that way, I think is a, a very excellent way of coach education. But it's also a period that takes at least months and in many cases, years. Um, and in terms of making coaching accessible as uh, as an occupation there's a, always going to be a balancing act between giving the people the tools to be able to get out there safely and responsibly 
um, and also not making sure everyone has to go through like a two-year apprenticeship before they can coach. Um, yeah. So um, in an ideal world, yeah, like ev everyone would have years of parkour experience and years of coach education before they started um, just being solely in charge of other people. But I don't think that's a useful. I'm going to move to the shade quickly because my phone is unhappy about being in the sun. And I would, <laughs> I would hate to lose you. Uh, other people may be quite happy if I get lost. So I'm going to chill down by my scaffolding for a second. All right. Um, so where do you sit? Um, there's this sort of ongoing discussion throughout the community and it sits on multiple levels. And we've had, I think you have a reasonably nuanced um, opinion on this. So feel free to wander off on this one. Uh, on the idea that you have to be a skilled practitioner in order to be a skilled coach. Um, interesting, I was having a conversation about this in, for not parkour, but for something else yesterday. Um, I think there are going to be advantages that a significant background in whatever you wish to teach will give you that cannot be gleaned solely through the practice of coaching itself. Um, can, cannot just be theoretically understood. And I think parkour, more than many uh, activities, has more of those elements, those experiential elements, um, empathizing with the process of breaking a jump or experiencing fear and actively potentially seeking that fear and actively looking for new ways to use your space and I mean you could definitely teach someone okay here's a space look at all the different possibilities but having been in that space and tried those things for your, those things for yourself I think gives you a, a perspective that just is going to be lacking from anyone learning about it from a purely theoretical standpoint um, and then going into some maybe some more of the community uh, elements of parkour I think again that's something to be experienced we, we know it intuitively from coming from the community and being part of it um, but telling people that oh this is a very community-based thing when on the face of it it can be a very individual pursuit even if someone kind of knows that I think it'd be very hard to replicate that in action especially if they're not able to in some manner join in and that doesn't necessarily have to be physically um, mm -hmm. but I, maybe engaging is a better word than joining in uh, in that yeah. context but that engagement comes from having a root in the practice itself um, yeah so I think for all of those reasons having some background in uh, the practice is important to help you be the best parkour coach that you can um, but a lot of the skill set is very distinct from what makes someone a, a great athlete. And certainly being a great athlete doesn't do anything to develop a lot of the coaching skills that you're going to require. Yeah, it's something that I'm, I'm actually really interested in now, um, which is there's, there's like a, a complicated relationship between huge amount of skill, the ability to explain well, like, the nuance of incredibly complicated skills and then like a subset of ability to coach and lead a class and teach. And um, I can, I recently came across and you, you actually, if you work in the circus world a lot, you come across these, these coaches who have an ability to explain the nuance of incredibly complicated skills very, very well, but lack such basic 
coaching techniques like crowd control and uh, the way they behave towards the entire class and things. How to manage just, a space. Yeah, and it's really interesting because like, what makes a good coach is a complicated, nuanced thing with multiple different pieces in, in it. Um, but maybe one thing that would be really cool for us to break down for a second is a conversation that we've had before, which is that um, classically when focusing on um, analyzing the ability level of parkour practitioners, we've gone to strength and power prerequisites. And as the discipline focuses and changes, um, I think people are becoming more comfortable with this interpretation of parkour as a thing where you overcome challenges. And of course, um, one part of that is bringing in people who might not be able to generate huge amounts of power or strength. And um, how has your opinion on how we analyze the quality of practitioners changed over the course of the last 10 years doing the ADAPT and seeing that, mm. that constant, like, um, not battle, but distinct problem come up again and again in different formats? I mean, I think fundamentally it's, it's just more a question of broadening the, broadening the criteria that you're looking at. So if you're just looking at do people have enough strength or power, whatever it is, to do this thing that I'm trying to teach them, you're only looking at one of the relatively... Oh, I think we've lost Chris. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, I have lost Chris from the feed. Can you Hopefully. hear me at all? I can hear you now. Oh, there yes. we go. Oh, okay. um, did you get any of that? Because I can just start my point again. Start your point again. Um, so strength and power are just one very specific aspect that may be a barrier to entry for practicing or learning something. Um, so if we just take a technique as an example, um, not because parkour is all about techniques, but because it's a very clear example for us to talk about. Um, there are lots of things that might stop someone being able to engage in learning that thing or practicing the drill that you've planned in your class. And one of those is going to be the physical capacity. Do they have the strength or power required to do this? Um, but it could also be, do they have the mobility required to be able to uh, participate in this? Um, it could also be, do they have the current levels of technique or body awareness or mechanics or whatever it may be to be able to do this um, or it could be do they have the uh, confidence to be able to put their physical and kind of technical knowledge into action um, and if you look at it from that much broader context there's always something you can do to help people engage in those activities whether it's changing the way that you're learning an individual technique or whether it's choosing totally different styles of movement because you can pick a type of movement that is accessible to their, their current profile rather than just going, oh, what have they got the strength to do? So I, I think it's more about broadening the kind of characteristics you're looking for in assessing uh, students rather than necessarily throwing out the power strength thing and seeing it as part of the picture rather than a different picture. Cool. Um, so let's uh move slightly on to uh what you were talking about at last year's european art of retreat because i think mm -hmm. that will serve as a really fun foundation for a further discussion you brought up two basic 
styles or issues you saw with the majority of coaches um, that you had begun teaching? You can, if you'd managed to filter them into two boxes, both of which had different lessons to learn. Do you want to give a bit quick overview of those two ideas and where the middle ground you saw existed? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's essentially the classic uh, teaching scale. And what I've noticed is that people tend to group around the poles very strongly. So on one hand, we've got a much more, we'll call it a coach-centered approach, which is the coach has all the knowledge and they're essentially giving that knowledge to the students. And in a movement context, that could be, this is a thing, this is how you do the thing, do it like I'm telling you to do it. Um, and then on the other end, you've got the, I'm not a teacher of anything, everyone's just finding their way. Here's a very general activity, go and practice this activity. Magically, you're gonna get better just by doing this vague thing. Um, I, I, again, I'm slightly, those are slightly more extreme than most of the uh, people that I've seen teaching. But for me, I think people tend to gravitate much more strongly towards one of those poles than they do spend any time, not so much in the middle as much as trying to alternate between those approaches, depending on the coaching context they find themselves in and which approach is going to work better for either the types of outcomes that you're trying to achieve or the needs of the students that you have in the session. And I think most coaches would benefit from being more flexible about which approach they used based on the needs of their students, rather than what they believe or what they feel is their best coaching style. And it's actually really interesting because in some ways the student-centered approach is all about focusing on the needs of your students. And a lot of people use that approach regardless of whether that fits the needs of their students or not. So I think there's a, an irony, yeah. um, not necessarily inherent in that coaching style, but that I often see played out. Yeah. Um, so like there's this, there's well, this sort of uh, mistake. Both of us trying to talk over each other, wonderful. This, yeah. this lovely mistake where you see a student-centered approach means the student should be allowed to guide their own learning, um, which is totally true until you realize that you need to give the students some, some basis through which they can guide their own learning. Yeah, right. And essentially your job as the coach is to based on a, a, some kind of assessment of their needs is to produce a framework that suits both their needs and their current aptitudes. And I think a lot of people ignore one or both of those things and just go, here is my student-centered framework. I'm gonna throw all my students into it. And for sure, some people are gonna thrive in that environment and some people are gonna find it very challenging and not necessarily in a positive way. Just because something's very challenging doesn't necessarily make it either good or bad. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, some students respond incredibly well to being almost constantly in their red zone. They, they can deal with the stress, they find it very motivating, and they will get a lot of growth from that. And other students will just shut down, they'll learn nothing, maybe they don't come back. Um, mm -hmm. And so they, they need to have more guidance. And actually one of the interesting things from uh, having had the good fortune um, and privileged to coach educate around the world is also that the coaching and the teaching systems that students are used to will also have a big effect on which types of coaching styles work best certainly initially or how much time may need to and effort may need to be put into moving them towards accepting and thriving from these other coaching styles um, mm. so it's, it's a broad generalization but especially in uh, Eastern Asia, uh, so China, Taiwan, Korea, 
Um, so the, the countries that I've coached in from my personal experience, so it may well extend to other countries, but I don't want to generalize where it's not applicable. Um, there is a much stronger co uh, a much stronger emphasis on the teacher as the master and you're just waiting to be told and it's just you you are just there as a sponge to absorb their knowledge and then that's gonna make you better and then that's yeah it. so one of the we, um, this this came up in the so last year's level three adapt course had a number of guys from uh south korea and singapore in the course uh and, and, taiwan. and taiwan yes and um we were obviously talking about ways to teach expert students and that specific idea of okay well what happens after you've done the much more direct style of coaching and the, the, the pushback that all the guys gave was this is this runs counter to our cultural norms which is really interesting yeah and I, I, I when we're looking at the context like now we're talking about very broad huge like global regions in terms of differences but i think even within people's own city there's going to be huge differences in the teaching cultures uh, let's just take like a maybe a more class or economic based one um, but if you go to a private school the way that students are likely to respond to their teachers is very different from if you go to a, a school that's got more, much more challenging needs mm -hmm. um, and your coaching style may have to change at least partly not all the way but to kind of meet them somewhere in the middle of like how do I want to coach what will these people accept as coaching and then over time maybe it becomes a more natural thing as they're used to your methods they're used to your personality your style um and that, 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 can, that can happen relatively quickly but the more entrenched these ideas are about what is a student teacher relationship supposed to look like and what is the dynamic of that relationship i think the longer it will take and the more careful you're going to have to be about how you use those methods or at the very least how you frame those methods and if you're very good you can try and use a lot of the same methods but frame it in a way that is more likely to be accepted mm -hmm. do you want to just try and pin i know it's very broad but do you want to try and pin those ideas just onto like uh this is an example of um uh, a, a pedagogical style this is a, an example of a student-led style this is what it looks like in a parkour context just so people can get a feeling for what we're discussing yeah yeah, yeah. I, I the very simple one is actually something that i've done with a lot of my uh, high school classes that i do um which is okay and my basic goal actually for most sessions or one of my goals for my first sessions is always going to be let's try and get everyone able to do a a reasonable approximation of a step vault or I'm, I'm going to use the word step vault. I know some people call it a safety vault. That's a different debate. I'm not going to get into that now. But <laughs> you know, you, you know, and people can probably guess my feelings on that. Um, so my outcome and my goal doesn't change, but I can take a very coach-centered approach of we're going to learn step vaults. This is how you do a step vault, and just get everyone to very mechanically try and replicate it. Or I can go, here's a box. Get over the box and then see what happens and maybe the step vault comes. Um, and what I tend to do is the marriage of those approaches, which is a, here, here is an obstacle or a challenge, try and do with that challenge. And then after a couple of minutes, maybe set some parameters, like get people to avoid using their knees or, um, and, and depending on how gung-ho the group is, maybe some kind of safety limitations of 
short, but something simple like a very short run up or like deliberately setting the box in a way that limits their run up so that they can't go too fast in a way that might put them in danger if they try and do something um, excessively adventurous. Um, and then pick out from what I've seen. Okay, so some of you did this. Let's try and make that even better. And then you can add in some of those the key coaching points and bring a more coach-centered approach in afterwards. Um, of course, classically, as always, I would argue you do it the exact opposite way because I'm the pedagogue. Um, yeah. So it's really well, interesting. But, but actually, a really important distinction to make is that depending on what I'm teaching, I may well do it the opposite way around as well. So like if I'm doing rolls or lashes, I'm never going to start with, here's the bar, try and swing around. <laughs> we'll, we'll try to get up afterwards. Right? That way, that way that's, lays That's down. a really bad idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, same, no, same with rolls. Like people are going upside yeah. down, even if it's seen as a relatively low impact movement, people are still going head first towards the floor. I'm going to make sure that I can dictate that process in a way that creates a safe environment for people. Mm-hmm. It's um it's an interesting because it's it's come up more than once this um this distinction and this different approach and I think the simple answer is that the different the different concepts have applications in different places uh, so the classic one being I was talking with Chris Grant about uh, youth work mm-hmm. and a lot of the youth work principles reflect a lot of these ideas about the student led approach where you meet them uh, in their own spaces and you. Um, you don't tell them you are coming into their space and therefore you must adjust how you behave so that it lines in with them and you do what they want that they're motivated to do. And that stands in stark contrast to um, when you walk into a school and you are a teacher and they are going to think of you as a teacher. So if you bring that student-led approach into a school, you're going to have come up against all sorts of issues because they won't know how to behave. So instead you walk in and you're a teacher, so you might go for that coach-led approach. But I think what's interesting about what you're saying here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if you are in that teacher-led position where you start in a very controlling manner, one of your outcomes as they get to know you is to slide into this much more, um, hey, guys, this is a space where you can explore yourselves approach. And then if you were at the other scale, you were with the group board, you had to really do that slow outreach first. You'd probably be looking to pull them back into a place where you could give them more knowledge. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like, you're always going to be, you're always going to have some different needs, and sometimes they align, sometimes they've got very different requirements between what are the physical technical outcomes of the class versus also what are any kind of social or just more, much more general coaching needs of the class. And it might not be that you need to prioritize one over the other, but there will be plenty of situations where it's like, actually, I need to develop some kind of social outcomes first and the parkour is very much a tool that we're using to do that and then over mm-hmm. time once that's established now we're going to focus much more on the let's call it the parkour specific uh, outcomes and elements um, or it might be that a by lot of that- parkour specific specific are you there meaning the movement specific outcomes or are you no i was i was trying to be a little bit more broad than that so one thing is it will obviously include the movement specific outcomes but also there will be some elements which aren't necessarily uh unique to parkour but like dealing with fear um like being creative with movement um that 
some of them may interplay into social things, um, but they're not necessarily just the movement-based um, element or side of parkour. So I, I, I wanted to keep much more broad. It's just all of the different parkour elements and outcomes that I might have in a session versus, you know, whether it's social outcomes, whether it's like cross-curricular outcomes. So like helping engage students in like, we do a sport that comes from France. So like I get to use some French words and that's good cross-curricular work. I mean, I, I tend to like use a lot more maths and physics. Like if I'm teaching people Tic Tacs and they're old enough that they're likely to come across distance science already, I'll talk about angles of incidence and angles of reflection because it can link to the other things they're learning and the more cross-curricular um, yeah, pollination that you get between different subjects, the more it will reinforce those aims. Even if from a purely parkour perspective, I don't, like your knowledge of physics is not going to be the most important thing. I think most parkour athletes and certainly most parkour coaches would benefit from having a great understanding of the laws of physics, but it's not the most important, <laughs> not the most important thing. Yeah, um, the idea of um, understanding your outcomes is really important, I think, for anyone who wants to work professionally as a parkour coach is you're regularly going to be in circumstances where your outcomes as a coach and the outcomes of the person giving you money to do your job may not fully align. Yeah, and also able... the people coming to those clubs, like if you're going into a school, yeah. it could be what you want, what the school wants, what the students want are three different things, not just two different things. So, yeah. And learning to give up, some, especially some of those like closer held like opinions on what parkour is can often improve coaching a long way. Um, the most obvious one, and my favorite is I, um, I spend a lot of time sort of like dismantling this concept that in order to teach parkour, you have to teach Kongs. They're great. They're a wonderful movement. They mean a lot to me. I love them. You don't need to introduce a group of seven-year-olds in a school to Kongs on their third ever parkour class. It's not going to help you. It's not going to be useful. Um, like just letting go of some of those ideas will help the yeah. teachers. I mean, I think if, if, just to take the Kong example specifically, like it, it was one of the very common things that I would do early on is like, well, what are the most, the most basic vaults that I know? They're not basic. I'm just, it was my thought yeah. process at the time. Um, I was like, okay, yeah, let's say some, some kind of step vault, speed vault, Kongs, boom, 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 go through it. Um, and actually, I think generally, my approach has even moved away, not just from Kongs, but from that more specifically. I'd, I'd like to think more in terms of the general types of obstacles. So things that require, let's say, waist height obstacles, things that require vaulting, things that are going to need your hands to help you get over, gaps that you're going to need to jump between, uh, things that you're going to need to like hang from. And through Sounding that... very French right now. Well, the thing is, though, through that, that that gives you a lot of different possible techniques that you could use and once people have got usable techniques there does it matter if they've got 10 different usable techniques probably not but there what it means is if i've got a school where people maybe they've done parkour once or twice and you've got some students that can kong i actually don't need to ex stop them doing that and regressing them just so that everyone can um get involved what i can do mm -hmm. is create an environment that gives them that space without um providing things that are inaccessible for some of the other students mm -hmm. i mean you're now on to um 
pur pur purposeful practice and constraints-led approach thinking, which is all of my favorite stuff. But let's move a little say, bit away. Do you like it, do you? <laughs> <laughs> let's move a little bit away from coaching and move more into uh, coach education a little bit. So sure. what I'd love to know from you, you obviously get this really broad overview of the state of parkour coaching across the world. Mm. Um, due to your you know, job, you travel. How many countries, did, first of all, how many countries did you visit last year? And which countries are doing things in parkour coaching that really interest and inspire you? Okay. Um, I'm going to guess it was like eight or nine countries last year, but it may be more something like that um i think one of the things that's interesting and it's I'm, I'm not i might mention one or two countries but i'm going to try hard not to just like pin down communities is because i think a broad thing is just in the same way that parkour has evolved over how, how many well let's say let's say 30 ish years now and certainly once it spread around the world the last you know 16 or 17 uh, taking probably a slightly UK-centric idea of when it spread around the world. Um, it's pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, you've got the Russian climbers and a, a little bit of spread prior to 2003, but it was def definitely a significant spread in popularity after then. Um, but in the same way, I think people that have had strong and developing coaching paradigms for, let's say, over a decade are now exploring different ways of coaching. Um, regardless of their country's educational um, teaching paradigms. Whereas I think most countries where parkour coaching is still a very new thing, it's just natural that people will try and coach it in a way that they're used to sport being coached. So their PE teachers at school, their, their football coach, their swimming coach, their netball coach, like whoever it is, it's very likely and natural that they will emulate the sports coaching styles that they are used to and in the beginning that's always at least in my experience been a much more coach-centered here's the thing do this drill I'm the coach um, mm -hmm. so I think over time whether it's kind of flipping to the other extreme or just gradually moving towards a mid-ground that that is the way that coaching seems to evolve in most places and I guess the difficult thing to know is how much of that is that's the natural evolution and how much of that is the people that are new to coaching now have uh, access and contact with some of the communities that have been doing it for 10 plus years and have gone that way. So now they're just copying a different style of coaching rather than actually evolving their coaching in the same way. Okay. What are the, what are the emerging trends? What's changing in parkour coaching right now? Um, I think generally, uh, it was actually interesting listening to your chat with Brandy about kind of what was she trying to do with some of her, certainly large event uh, coaching. Um, but I think generally there's a trend towards more experience-based sessions and people are just having experiences of parkour rather than necessarily learning these other things. Um, or whether it's learning techniques or... Um, whatever it may be um, so it's more about actually something that Stefan Vergru did a lot with us at the beginning so I, I, I don't want to make it sound like this is only a new invention a lot of Stefan's early classes were very like okay this is like a two-hour class but it wasn't just follow me 
but I think it was strongly influenced by the way that, or some of the ways that he would have learned from David Bell um, in the beginning, which is like, well, if you can keep up with me, keep trying to keep up with me. Um, and there's more to it than that, but it, it was a very like parkour experience. It didn't necessarily feel that much like a class in a way that most other parkour classes I think did. It felt very much like, okay, this is the class, here we are doing, like, I, for myself, I've even conceptualized it as like class parkour, which is mm -hmm. things you see in a parkour class, but no one has ever done in their own training, like ever. Um, and there will be, there will be some people and some exceptions where that is an appropriate use. I'm not saying that just because this isn't a drill that people don't do in, I'm gonna quote it again, real life, that it's without merit. But a lot mm -hmm. of the things, people are doing it just because kind of the nature and the context of the class environment inspires them to try and get people to learn it and practice it in a certain way that yeah. is actually inferior to just a lived experience of parkour. Yeah, there's a couple of things to really pull out there. Um, for me, the, the most important one is that, that sort of final point you were making, which is um, if, if the people in your class could just go out to a jam and do it the way you did in 2003, they wouldn't be at a parkour class. There are people for whom that is a method that works. You go out and you experiment, you play and you fail. There are people, maybe it's because um, they have a fear of something, or maybe it's because they have busy lives and they're working really hard every day. But there are people for whom they want to be able to turn up and be told what to do. And like there is, there should be space for them within our discipline too. And if you don't want to make space in the discipline for them, you should at least let us teach them so that we can make a living. Um, and the second thing that I find really interesting about that is saying that experience, experiential parkour coaching is a developing trend does not in any way take away from the importance of technical development uh, of skill acquisition. Mm. I think that they both have a place. Um, and that's kind of the, how I see that dichotomy too. Um, there's an experiential movement in parkour coaching right now, which is so huge and so interesting. And as a technical skill acquisition guy, um, I can look at it almost in jealousy, wondering how I can improve my coaching by being more like that. Right. Well, so this is is one of the things, again, like uh, listening to the one that you do with Brandy, where it's like, I'm never going to be the guy that gives people this is an amazing experience in the tree just based on the experience. Like I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not that, I'm not that storyteller. It's why I couldn't teach in exactly the same way that Stefan did, because um, although he's, a very good technical mover certainly at the time he may not have been the best technical coach but there was a narrative to his class and his experience that made it incredibly engaging uh, and also I, I just happen to believe works better in a foreign accent like there are, just, <laughs> there are just ways that you can tell the story and give it meaning that sounds better with a french accent than if i say it now that made that's just my personal bias i'm not saying Maybe. that's true for everyone um so what I've had to try and do is like, well, how can I create meaningful parkour experiences that both feel true to me and my character, um, but are also useful for my students or that I, I value as being useful for my students. I want them to value it as well. And actually in many ways, it's more important that they value it than I value it. Mm -hmm. but also if I want to help them improve over time, if I can't see the value for it, then I think there's a limit to how far that will take them. Interestingly, if you do, if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about these ideas of experiential practice, 
I did a podcast with Brandy last week, which is what Chris has mentioned, which will be going out. It's already out on live. It'll be going out on the new Spotify and iTunes channel soon. But I also did one with Alan Tran, who's another amazing mm. experiential parkour coach. Uh, and he and I talked about how you feel while you practice. That's another really cool one if you want to explore these ideas further. Um, but I really like that idea that you put in, which is how you can teach in a way that is true to yourself. Because you and I, being geeks and nerds, we have to kind of go down that more techie way of thinking and doing. And that's important too, because there's no point in trying to be someone you're not. No, no, you, you have to amplify the things that are both most true to yourself, but also that you think are going to be most helpful to others. Right? Just because something's very true to me, if it's got no value for others, probably I should find something else that's true to myself that I think will be more useful uh, to my students. So for me, I think I've got a fairly good eye for detail. Um, and although this isn't always a strength, I think I've got quite a mechanical way of thinking about a lot of, um, just a lot of things. Um, but it means that I can turn that to my advantage in the way that I try and craft things. And to some extent, people are machines. Now that they're incredibly complicated and nuanced machines, um, and you always have to be prepared to be surprised. But if that is a way of thinking that is natural to you, I think there are some broad things that you can assess and tell and use to craft very meaningful, not just movement learning sessions, but experiential sessions as well. Cool. This is probably a really good time for us to move slightly forward because I also want to kind of come back to an emerging trend in the world of parkour, which I think is throwing a lot of people because of many things we've been talking about right now, which is that a lot more, since there are more parkour coaches around and there are companies developing, we're seeing more and more, slightly more experienced parkour coaches having to begin the process of coach development in their own communities. Mm. And this, as you kind of mentioned earlier, that mentor idea is a hugely important part of how we produce really good parkour coaches, how we identify people that share our values and are going to share the practice in a way that we're comfortable with. Um, what sort of advice would you have for those people like myself who are day-to-day -day in a position where we are now becoming coach educators almost as much as coaches? Yeah, um, I think the first thing is to, anyone in that position is already going to have quite a strong idea of what they believe coaching is about um which is good uh, i think if you've been coaching for any amount of time even if your idea is changing and you're open to it changing you should still have a strong idea of what you think it's about um and using that as a base for whether it's mentoring newer coaches coach education is is really good because it gives you something that you can anchor your ideas and your feedback and your advice to um but also trying to deliberately think about ways that other uh, either other coaches that you work with or that you've um, experienced do things. And so trying to find not just like what you do, but what is that an example of? Um, maybe, maybe that's probably the most useful way of thinking about it. Um, so it's, it's not a do it like this. It's like, what does doing it like this achieve? What are the other ways that that could be achieved? Like this is what is important um, mm -hmm. because it's, there are times when it's very easy to see who has had who as a mentor because it's a bit like just, and in almost every case, it's a bit like a worse version of that first person. It doesn't mean that people that get into coaching can't exceed the people that mentored them, 
but that if you're just trying to be like that person, chances are you're never going to be a better version of that coach than they are. So what you need to try and do is take what lessons can I have from them, but use them in a way that's authentic or just works with my natural characteristics. And so the inverse is true when you're in your position, which is the like, how do I try and give people either some effective tools or effective advice without just getting them to follow what I do exactly? Um, I like that idea of um, identifying where on the grand scheme of things you sit and understanding and being comfortable with the pros and cons of who you are and not trying because like it's that that lovely donning kruger effect that, that is always fun which is almost every parkour coach thinks they're the best parkour coach um and if instead you understand hey where do i sit within the broader spectrum where are my strengths and where are my weaknesses um and are the coaches following me going to be more like me or are they maybe going to need to find different mentors with different styles? Yeah. Well, and um, especially, most especially, because if it's a coach, and maybe this is also important, if it's the coach that has come up through your classes or someone that's becoming a coach that has been a student of yours for a long time, they're already going to be deeply ingrained in your culture and your way of doing things. So even though you might be giving them the advice in a new way, and for sure, until people think about it explicitly, just the fact that they've been in your classes for four years doesn't necessarily mean they've absorbed that advice or those lessons. But it is also still going to be, it is still going to be very familiar for them. Um, so actually, trying to find ways of broadening their coaching experience and outlook is important. Um, mm -hmm. Whether that's, as you say, finding other coaches that are better suited to them but i think just really a plurality of experiences um and also i, I think maybe the number one thing i see from people that are whether it's kind of internal company coach development or in a more broader capacity is trying to encourage reflection as much as possible um it's one of the things it's one of the most difficult challenges actually of doing a, a coaching course specifically is that you have a very limited time with these people um, and a lot to get across. So what I want is I want to try and engender as much self-reflection and critical thinking so that once they leave that course and they continue coaching, they have some tools and they have the habit even of just kind of questioning, well, why did I do that? did it work as well as I expected it to? Um, how could I have done it differently? Um, and I think when people are developing their coaches, that that is a very good example of when, unless someone is doing something very specifically wrong, it's much better to have a more student-based approach of why did you do it like that? What were the challenges you faced? Let's, let's meet you where you are now. Mm -hmm. Rather than that more getting across specific like okay well you did this i would do it this way and therefore this way is correct yeah right uh, yeah. basically you do it like this i'll do it like this why do i think my way is better which is it's also a good exercise for you because it might be that you can justify yeah. why it's better um, and in which case i wouldn't say do it like me i would say i do it like this because of this because then okay. maybe they find an even better way but at least they understand what they're trying to Hold on, Chris, you, uh, you've disappeared on us again. Oh, hello. You are, no, you're back. You're all good. Yeah. Did, did you hear me doing that? Or was it... I, think we, I think I heard you throughout that whole thing. So you've you heard were me saying, 
Yeah, no worries. Um, of course, the joy of that analysis is I would again flip it around because what I would say is as, an, as a less experienced coach, what I advise is you do it the way I show you until you know why you don't have to do it the way I show you. Sure. I mean, I think to some extent it's also going to depend where they are in their development and how much autonomy they have within, uh, within the setting that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's definitely a change in risk profile there, though, because if you're, but, because they're they're both trying to marry these two ideas, yeah. which is, go. Cool. Well, I was just going to say, but there's also a slight difference because with, with the like, do it the way that I would do it. It's still a good starting point, but I don't know that that's the useful feedback reflection. Yeah. So it's like post class when you're having a review and a feedback of how it went then I think feedback about the active choices they made is going to be really important rather than just mm-hmm. how rigidly they stuck to what they were told to do. You've actually just hit upon a really, um, interestingly, this is cutting edge uh, t- education theory right now that we're going to get into. Um, but it, it, fits, it, married, it fits perfectly with this point. Um, one of the key problems most teachers have when they are providing feedback on work is they are trying to improve the work not the individual and what that means in this case is you look at the class that was just delivered and you critique the class that was just delivered and how it could be better instead of saying to this coach I see what you did here is how you could coach better it feels very similar but you can really begin to separate those things you begin talking about if you deliver with these skills, it, it feels more positive, it's more actionable, yeah. um, it gives you tools that they can really do something with. Yeah, well, it's two things. One um, is what you just said, is it actionable? And whether you're coaching or coach educating, feedback needs to end up at something that's actionable. Um, it needs to be something that can be put in place. Um, um, but then the second thing is transferability. And the danger is if you're just critiquing the class on the class's own merits, then until they run that class again, that may not be that useful. So the more transferable and more applicable to a wider range of contexts the feedback is, the more useful it's going to be at improving them as a person rather than at just delivering whatever element it is you happen to have seen. Hmm. Cool. Um, so my kind of the last 15 minutes of this, I want oh, to... Just very of... quickly, Dan, because I have one more uh, thing that I would recommend for people that are in the kind of certainly coach educating in terms of their own organizations, um, which is making sure that you expose them to a wide range of coaching situations, because there'll, there'll be things and problems and situations that will only occur in certain environments with certain people. Um, but I think just business-wise, often the case is just like, well, this is the one day a week that we need someone. So that's the one day a week this person is going to end up doing their their mentorship or whatever it may be um so like actively trying to find a way within the business limitations that you have of exposing them to both a wide range of experiences but also a balance of experiences that are going to find very challenging um but also experiences that they're going to find really satisfying and sometimes that might be the same thing but if a coach is just constantly thrown into very challenging coaching environments that can be very demotivating for a lot of people so you want to give them some good coaching wins where they're like, yeah, that was a great class. I loved it. Um, That's a really good point. 
I really like that. Um, it's not something I think about a lot. So thank you. I, I think it also helps try and stave off the beast of um, burnout, which I think, again, having been in a lot of different places around the world, I think burnout around parkour coaches is quite common. Uh, maybe especially newer ones who maybe this is their first foray into whether it's coaching or sometimes even work. I think that's mm -hmm. another big difference. A lot of us came to parkour coaching, at least with some other experience of work or life beforehand. But for the new generation of coaches, this might be the thing that they're doing straight away. So they're not just learning how to coach parkour. They're also learning how to hold down a, a part or full-time job at the same time. So I think, yeah, burnout amongst parkour coaches is something that isn't part of their skill set, but ways that we can manage that or give them the tools to help try and fend that off for themselves is another really useful thing that as coach developers we can do. Yeah, it's something that we're learning a lot of access. Um, we, when we bring new coaches in for their first term, it's normally, they're normally, normally delivering 20 hours of parkour coaching plus a week um, and working five or six, starting five or six days a week um, in a, potentially in a brand new city, uh, learning the way around it. Um, so we tell them, look, don't, don't focus on any fitness goals right now. Don't focus on your performance goals as a parkour practitioner. Look, for the next 10 weeks, survive and become accustomed to this kind of life because it is different. Like you can't, and this is the really complicated thing that's the downside and you need to be, you need to be warning people early on. You can't train five days a week, high intensity parkour coaching if you're a parkour coach. Which sounds crazy, but is totally true because delivering 20 hours of parkour a week is hard physically. We do, we do a hard physical job unless you want to stand and, there. And, and mentally demanding. Yeah. Uh, teaching is difficult. Um, but this is a really, I kind of, where I want to go with this, this for the last 15 minutes is I want to do a little bit um, of uh, coach education, like agony at work. <laughs> um, so my first question for you, um, and Kit and Chris is how do we provide effective feedback to developing coaches? Um, I think the, the first thing is always you want to do it as close, to, uh, same as anything else. You want to do it as close to the experience as possible and, and also actively make time for it. So it can be really hard if you've got a coach when you're doing like five or six classes a day, like giving them feedback at the end of the day is going to be very difficult for them to take on board or remember back what they did five or six classes ago um, so always try and identify the ways of making the feedback as immediate as you can and actively making time for that um, so I think that would be the first thing that I'd say um, I think and this is also true for parkour coaching not just coach educating but also highlight what's going well positive reinforcement mm. is a very useful motivating and valuable form of feedback and I think, if anything, I think the problem gets worse once you move into coach education. It's like the higher you go up the chain, the more it's just focused on this is what you need to do better. Mm -hmm. um, and for newer coaches, there might be things that they do really well that they don't actually really realize of excellent points because it just feels natural to them. But knowing this isn't something I want you to change, like keep doing this and build what you're doing around that. I think is actually not just motivating advice, but it's incredibly useful. And it's probably the type of feedback that's most missing mm -hmm. um, in most like newer coach education. Um, and then I, I say the third point would be what we said earlier is that 
it, it needs to be actionable in some way. And whether that's a specific outcome that you want them to do next time, whether it's a specific question to go away and reflect on, whatever it is, there needs to be some practical way of implementing the feedback. Yeah. Cool. Uh, um, so a slightly more complicated one now. Um, this is something that I observe. I don't know how much you observe it. Um, we kind of touched on it earlier because there's often this disconnect between how coaches deliver when they're being observed and how they deliver when they are alone in their more natural environments. So how yeah. do we build the trust to be able to view more authentic classes and provide actually useful, tangible feedback on what's really going on? Yeah. Um, I think there's a few different options available to us. Um, one thing is where the context of the class allows, and, and again, this won't work for, for every coach, but if you can join in in some way rather than be a clipboard in the corner, I think that makes it feel like a more natural class environment. Like people tend to be a little bit more nervous because they've got someone they look up to or someone that may be assessing them in that environment, but it still changes the environment from being a group of people doing and someone watching to just a group of people doing. Um, so I think that would be a really useful one for, for any coach who isn't going to kind of shut down from fear of having this really experienced person uh, in the class and also kind of making it clear that don't worry, like I'm just joining in the class. Like you don't need to worry about me necessarily. It depends on the level of the coach. If you think they, that trying to challenge you as a coach educator would be a good experience and challenge for them. Absolutely. Keep it in. Um, but for most people, it should just be like, just do a regular close. I'm joining in. I'd like to move. Um, and it also gives you a different perspective. One of the things that I find hardest as an assessor is just when you're watching something, you don't get a feel like things might feel quite boring to you because you've just been sitting there for 30 minutes. But actually, a lot of the nuance of doing it just kind of changes it from a boring experience into just maybe a more focused experience. Um, so trying to make sure that you can join in isn't just good in terms of creating a more realistic environment. I also think it gives you a useful perspective on some of the elements in the class that you just cannot tell for sure by observing. Um, I, th I think also as well is if you do have the luxury of doing so, building up to like how much time is being assessed or observed because let's say and you could do this actually if you trust them to do the warm-up just let them do the warm-up and get the class started and like you can be like completely somewhere else and coming in after 15 minutes is not the same as watching them from minute one mm -hmm. and for a lot for a lot of people just the fact that they get into a natural rhythm without you there makes it much easier to continue that natural rhythm than feeling the pressure of it from the start so i think those are like two different practical ways that you can try and create a more natural experience yeah, it's the, a piece of feedback comically that I give um, my coaches when they go down and do the level two and they often um, completely ignore and then don't pass uh, is, look, um, when you're doing your assessed hour, teach them something and you'll pass. I mean, uh, it, 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 it's not necessarily the official criteria, but whenever I'm looking at people, it's just like, yeah, did, did people did people get something out of it? And if they did, yeah. you know, assuming you didn't kill anyone, it certainly gives you a very good chance of passing. Um, and ultimately, that, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to share something meaningful. And normally, meaningful in some way has to have some element of novelty, whether it's something that they've 
never done before, or they've improved. So it's it's new that they've done it this well. Like those are all things based around the idea of novelty, rather than here's some parkour you've done in twenty other different lessons at exactly the same level that you've done in twenty other different lessons. It's like, oh, see them where they are, make them do something new or something familiar better. Cool. Um, and a really nice uh, final one for you to knock out the park wherever you want to. Um, how do we motivate our coaches to want to improve their practice? What's a good balance between experiencing mm. led coaching sessions and actually teaching versus studying and learning and going away and reading books? Yeah, I mean, again, the, the critical thing is always really going to be what are the needs of the student? In this case, the student being the, the trainee coach. So if you've got someone that has a very, very good theoretical base, the majority of their um, development is probably going to come from putting that into practice in a, in a range of different ways. Um, but if you've got someone that's been coaching for eight years in a variety of different contexts, then maybe eight years is an exaggeration if it's someone that's um, going through their development. But it's the same thing. Yeah, if we're it's seeing not- eight-year-old coaches have been there for eight years or introductory, then we're uh, setting high standards for ourselves. Yeah, not that those people cannot uh, develop, but yes, it's true. Um, change the time frame, but the principle remains. If this is someone, because you might have coaches that they're new to parkour coaching, but actually they've coached other sports before, like me, they mm-hmm. taught a musical instrument. So it's like, we've actually got quite a lot of experience of teaching, but maybe there's some specific areas of knowledge that you're lacking. Then probably you've got some of the tools that you're going to need to put that knowledge into action. What you need to do is now build your library of things that you know in order to help make the most of the experience that you have. Um, so the, the very uh, lazy answer is it really depends what's missing um, for that person. Uh, yeah, I think the only thing I'd kind of um, tack on to the end there is that um, if you feel like you're in a rut, change something. If you, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that, that's where... Even if you've got lots of experience, when we're talking, or when I'm talking about lots of experience, I'm not just talking about hours. I'm talking about again that diversity of experience. Mm-hmm. And you know, a hundred hours, but ten hours of ten different types of coaching environment is going to be much more valuable to you than a hundred hours of the same coaching experience. Um, Definitely, I, I think breadth, not depth, in almost everything, um, is important. Especially, I mean, to take it back to parkour, like. It, it comes from a more generalist versus specialist. If you look at some of the uh, natural method, method natural influences, that strongly believed in being generalists, not specialists. And I think parkour athletes are probably more specialized than we like to think a lot of mm-hmm. the time. But I think a, a core part of the practice is still about being adaptable and about being that generalist. So taking that approach to your coaching as well, I think is important. Definitely. And um, finding other places in which you can um, find joy, uh, working day in and day out, doing parkour, um, teaching at 20 hours a week and then trying to get in 10 hours of training. Uh, you often find that you, you get sick of parkour. Mm. So, you know, find, find things about like, mo- if you look at all of the coaches who've lasted a longer length of time, they normally have other physical interests. It might be martial arts. It might be weightlifting, it might be partner acrobatics, like generally they have other interests and that's what, what keeps the fire of parkour alive for them. They love it because they have other things in their life as well and yeah. that's allowed and to be expected. 
And uh, one of my yeah. coaches, Seb, talks about balance and how important it is to him. Um, he likes to party. That's his balance. I mean, it, whatever keeps you sane, as, as long as it's not, as long as it's not hurting you or someone else. I think. Um, yeah, I think I would agree with his his uh, statement. Nice. So uh, let's try, start wrapping this up. What are you presently working on as a coach, a coach educator, and a practitioner? Where are you trying to improve yourself right now, apart from uh, your tan? Which is working, by the way. Quarantine has done wonders for my tan. Um, it's also done wonders for my strength training. Um, so I'm very privileged and lucky to be able to travel as much with my job as I do. Um, but one of the few drawbacks of that is it makes having consistency in uh, certainly kind of strength training incredibly different in terms of access to equipment or even time um, during a lot of the travels. Um, so having had, I mean, time is meaningless in the apocalypse, but however long it is in lockdown now, <laughs> um, like six and I, a half weeks, that sounds about right. Um, could have been six and a half months. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but that, that is time, but I, I don't get otherwise. And even if people aren't traveling, just if you, if you are in the situation that you do have more time on your hands, it's not that you, you need to or should. There's no right way to get through this. Um, but if you do feel able to make the most of that time, it allows for consistency in a way that life very, very rarely does. Um, so for me, I, mean, I think I went three weeks uh, stupidly without a day off at all and then then my uh my, my back explained to me that that was a bad idea um so i've started to do three days of lifting and then one day uh a rest day but but it means that uh, at the moment i'm taking the opportunity to do a lot of strength work because when i travel i do have the luxury of being able to do parkour in some way whether it's joining in on some elements on the courses or whether it's just i'm in this spot i can spend half an hour jumping around and training for myself afterwards it's much easier to incorporate that into my regular life than it is to incorporate a more uh, rigid strength training regime. So that, that's my current athletic uh, improvements. Um, as a coach, the thing that I think is probably one of my hardest struggles at the moment is I like to make my classes both very interesting but also still feel very worthwhile for a lot of experienced students. Like um, a lot of a lot of people may have classes where people are at a more similar level to each other, um, whether just by the nature of the community or the nature of how your sign-ups and the classes themselves work. But we tend to have a very, very diverse group of students at our classes. Um, and I like to make sure that this is interesting for the most experienced person in the class as it is for the newest person in the class. Um, and I think I do that quite well, but the thing that I'm trying to improve is that sometimes, even though I'm careful to make sure it's appropriate for the newer people and the most experienced people, just the nature of what is available and happening for some students means that some of the new students probably rush the process a little bit and try things, not necessarily that they shouldn't, but actually aren't the most useful way for them to practice at that moment. So it's how do I try and keep that diversity of movement within the class, but in a way that doesn't maybe create a slightly I say, tiered I don't think sort of. Well, it's not so much that it's tiered, but, but I think it's like covert peer pressure. 
So I don't think oh. there's any, I don't think there's overt peer pressure in the sessions, but just the fact that people are trying things and other people theoretically can do that means they are now more likely to do it. Whereas if I just had, let's say, the yeah. least experienced half of the class, they'd never know that was a possibility. I wouldn't like. So that's a, a natural outcome of your preferred way of coaching, where you've got that root-based, challenge-based way of teaching. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I think possibly I can manage it better. So it's the thing that I'm putting the most time into trying to resolve or develop at the moment as a coach. Cool. Um, and finally, uh, are there any um, podcasts, books, resources that you'd like to recommend to our audience if they want to know more about coaching, coach education, or literally plug anything you want at this point? <laughs> Amazing. Um, honestly, at the risk of sounding incredibly new, new age and hippie, um, for this matter, I, I think for most people, the best resources are other people. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, could, I could happily shout out a bunch of really great coaches that I know and think you could learn a lot from. Um, just a few of the people, and I'm going to miss out a whole bunch of people. So if I don't say your name, like, I mean, you can shoot me, but please don't. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but Bocky is someone that like really stuck out to me. Um, I met him a couple of years ago really great practitioner, really great coach. They, uh, they've had him over in Denmark. Um, most of the people either currently or previously involved with street movement in uh, Denmark are really good coaches um, doing a lot of interesting types of things. Um, there's a guy, Marcus Grandjean, I may have mispronounced his surname over there, who I think would be best characterized now as more of a movement coach than a parkour coach. Um, but Marcus's done, work is really interesting. He's done some of my very favorite sessions that I've ever been in. Um, not necessarily so obviously and explicitly parkour, although they've always they've always involved like very typical parkour movements as well. Um, but just it's a whole way of challenging yourself that creates really really interesting learning experiences, but also learning environments. Um, so many, uh, yeah. Who, who else do I like? At the obviously, moment? Brandy. You've mentioned her a few times. Love yeah. her work. Well, and, and, and also because um, I, I think we're very different coaches and I think a lot of her coaching style is very different to mine, but in a way that complements. I had the privilege of uh, coaching with her at American Rendezvous a few years ago. Um, and there's very different... Um, I'm going to move to the shade again. There's very big differences <laughs> between us. Um, but she just coaches in a style in a way that I, I, I couldn't. Um, but that it, I find very inspiring. Oh, and we may have lost Chris as his phone overheats again. I'm sure he'll be back in a second. Um, this is the moment, of course, where Chris is naturally just mentioning the great work of uh, Access Parkour and all the great coaches here. And we'll see if we can get him back soon to make sure hello, he confirms. Hello. There we go. I yes. just said that obviously the coaches of Access Parkour are the most I heard. influential. I'm, there we go. You're, you're all delightful in every way. <laughs> um, I, th I think also actually I, I will say because I, I think there's been a lot of pushback um, from various parts of the community over the years against uh, some of the Amakazi um, as coaches and I think there's an awful lot that we can still learn from the first and second generation practitioners as coaches I think it's not a very traditional coaching style in many ways and 
there are some things that definitely I've had um, more kind of immediate moments of, ah, oh, that's how to do this thing, like from other coaches. But if we're looking at like powerful experiences and you're going there looking for a powerful experience rather than someone that's going to get your lache like super good, then there's like still so much you can get out of training with Laurent or Chow or Yan. And their second generation coaches are also highly experienced, very theoretical people. I've had Stan, great work Stanny with Stanny. Uh, we've had Chloe here for a few months. She was fantastic. Um, yeah, there's right. a lot of talent there. I think a lot of the time the pushback has come from people going there with one idea of coaching, experiencing a different idea of coaching and just going, oh, that's rubbish. Um, whereas I think if you understand what they're doing and look for it on those merits, there's a lot you can take from that. And there's, certainly there's elements that I'm envious and which I would uh, incorporate mm. better into my own coaching, even though I, there's never been a moment where I just want to coach like them. Yeah, there's an element of breaking out that wisdom concept. Yeah. Um, there's, there is wisdom to be taken from some experiences, um, even if the technicality of everything isn't there. I mean, and they, if they're teaching you, they're often teaching in their second language or third language in some of their cases. Right. Um, and it's just my, a different my, way of thinking. My experience of teaching in a second language for anyone that has experienced that in Quebec, um, I, I mean, I can only apologize. So I have the utmost respect for anyone uh, coaching in their second or third language. I tried to uh, coach in German when it was in uh, Germany and they just kept mm. asking me questions in English, but uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, okay. Guys, that is going to be the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Chris, for uh, talking uh, about all these things. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you. You're I've continued welcome. talking with you, but um, we have run way over, so we'll finish there. And you're bored of my stuff by now. <laughs> Uh, exactly. That's it. Uh, thank you all very much for coaching and I'll, I'll be back next week.